0: Good morning, everyone. We um, are so grateful to the Lord for our time in the men's ministry yesterday. We had a great manly time having breakfast together and hearing the teaching from God's Word, and we do want to thank uh, the Cerritos Care Group for putting that time together and serving so faithfully in that way, and also Elder Bob for the uh, very needed teaching on men's roles, That just things that we need to hear and to consider and just to be reminded of time and time again, such a necessary and blessed time, and we look forward to more of the uh, women's breakfast and men's breakfast, and, and we look forward to the singles breakfast as well, that that would be a time that the Lord would use for his glory, and we encourage you to set aside those times for um, mutual edification, and just to just to hear the teaching of God's Word and to be blessed and edified by it. So we thank you all for that, for um, joining us in that time. Uh, For our time in the Word this morning, we are going to go back to Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at verses 7 to 8 this morning. We have been studying the great doxology of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. It is a... Doxology that unfolds for us the riches of God's grace, the wonders of His salvation in Christ. And now we come to really what is at the center of this doxology. And what I would say is actually at the center of the entire Bible. And that is what Paul says in verse 7. He says, In Him that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So this morning, I want to speak to you on the doctrine of redemption. The doctrine of redemption. And if you've been with us in our series in the book of Ephesians, you know that we have covered two great doctrines as we've moved through this doxology. The first doctrine we covered was the doctrine of election, Paul says in verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul traces our salvation back to eternity past where God made a sovereign choice of the believer to be saved. And so we looked at that truth, how we've been chosen in Christ. In fact, how we looked at the truth, how the church could be called the elect. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, Paul refers to an individual named Rufus, and he calls Rufus the elect. We could name any believer in this church and call them the elect of God because they have been chosen before the foundation of the world. The second great doctrine we saw was in verse 5, and that is the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons. We saw that the doctrine of adoption had the whole idea that we were once children of wrath. We were naturally children of the devil. We were held captive to do the devil's will. And God lovingly, in love, he says, verse 4, in love, God lovingly, not only chose us before the foundation of the world, but he adopted us to be his sons in Christ, to become part of his spiritual family and to receive the blessing of this great relationship with God by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so those two doctrines are just so critical to our lives. They are so critical for your daily walk with Christ, to understand election, God's choice of you, to understand adoption, how God has adopted you in Christ, and I want to say that this third doctrine is as critical as well. This is crucial. This is vital for us to understand. This is vital for us to think through carefully. This is vital for us to grasp in our hearts and in our minds and to daily not only understand this truth, but to live by it, to live in the good of this truth. Where Paul says in verse 7 In him we have redemption in him we have redemption you'll notice that this doctrine is at the center of this doxology right Paul's gone to eternity past and he's going to take us to eternity future but in the very center of this doxology he takes us to the cross he takes us to the culmination of redemptive history where Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. And he says that we have redemption. I think we could say that all of biblical history is redemptive history. Redemption is at the heart of the Bible. Redemption is really at the heart of the gospel message. If you want to understand the gospel message, you you can understand it in this one word, redemption. We have been redeemed. Redemption is at the center of understanding who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We call Jesus Lord. We call him Savior. But one of the most common titles that we refer to him as is Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. We just sung about that. Jesus is our great Redeemer. And the scriptures refer over and over to this truth, constantly emphasizing how important that this is. If Romans 3, verse 24 says, We have been justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says this of Jesus He entered once for all into the holy places by the means of his own blood thus securing eternal redemption. And Revelation 14 verse 4 refers to believers as those who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and of the lamb. You know this word redemption it's synonymous with salvation. It's synonymous with being a Christian. Being a Christian is being redeemed. And this is one of the truths that is just at the heart of Christianity. To understand redemption is to understand the story of the Bible and is to understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. B.B. Warfield was a theologian in the 19th century. And he said this, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. He said, it is even more precious to our hearts than the title Lord and the title Savior. Why? Because it is the name specifically of Christ on the cross. Whenever we pronounce the name Redeemer, he said, the cross is portrayed before our eyes. And our hearts are filled with a loving remembrance, not only that Christ has come to to purchase our salvation, but of the price he paid in order to secure it. It is the name specifically of Christ on the cross. My prayer, dear brothers and sisters, is as you listen to this message that the cross would be portrayed before your eyes that we would come and behold the wonders of our Redeemer, the price that he paid to save us from our sins. And so for your joy and for my joy as well, I want to present to you three simple questions concerning verse 7. First, what is redemption? Secondly, how is it accomplished? And thirdly, what is the result of redemption in our lives? Let's look at the first question. What is redemption? What is redemption? Verse 7, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, that word redemption is really a basic idea. It is the freeing of a slave through the payment of a price. Redemption is the freeing of a slave through the payment of a price. If you want to understand the whole idea of redemption, it is really the idea that we have been slaves before we came to Christ. We were enslaved to our sins and our lusts and our pleasures. We were enslaved to the idolatry that is in our hearts. We were enslaved to do the will of the devil and Jesus Christ, in his infinite love and mercy, saw us enslaved in bonds to our sin. And he came into the marketplace and he said, I will buy you. I will pay the price so that you will go free. Redemption is the freeing of a slave through the payment of a price. And just to shepherd your hearts in a little more detail here, there are three basic Greek words that can be translated redemption And each of these words emphasize the payment of a price. The first word is the word agorazo, which comes from the related term agura, which means marketplace. Agorazo means to go into the marketplace and to buy something. It's really a simple idea. You go to Albertson's, you go to Ralph's, you pay 20 bucks for for some ice cream. You take that ice cream and what do they say? That ice cream is yours. You've bought it. You've gone into the marketplace, you purchased it for yourself, and now you have the right to do with that ice cream whatever you please. You have a receipt that says you have bought that item. And that's what agorazo meant. It meant you go into the marketplace and you buy something. You pay a price so that it becomes yours. The second Greek word is related to the first. It is the word ex agorazo meaning to buy out of or to buy from the marketplace. The idea behind ex-agorazo is that you come into the marketplace and you take something out of it, and it becomes, the emphasis here is your permanent possession. It's it's yours in a permanent sense. You're not going to return it. So you could take that ice cream home and decide you don't like it, decide you're going to go back to Albertson's and put it back in the marketplace. But the idea behind ex-Agorazzo is that it is yours permanently. There are no returns. There are no refunds. In Roman society, there were approximately six billion slaves, and those slaves were bought and sold like commercial property. And when a slave experienced ex-Agorazzo, the idea is that he became the permanent possession of his master. He would not be returned to the marketplace to be sold again but he would be permanently transferred to the ownership of a master. And so those first two words picture the idea of redemption. Redemption is the paying of a price to make something your own. But there is a third Greek word, which is the word Paul uses in this text. And this third Greek term is the term apolutrosis. And this term is actually stronger than the first two. Because while the first two were used to describe the buying of a slave, this third word is used to describe the freeing of a slave. Apoleutrosis comes from lutrosis, which means to free or to set loose or to release. And this third word for redemption emphasizes the fact not only that a price has been paid for a slave to be set free, but as a result of that price, the slave is now free from bondage. He is released from captivity. That is really the picture Paul wants us to grasp in verse seven, where he says, in him that is in Christ, we have redemption. We have been set free from our slavery, our former slavery to sin. And Christ has purchased our souls by the price he paid at the cross. Now I want you to know that, again, this is picturing for us a very sobering truth. Brothers and sisters, this is very sobering teaching because what it emphasizes to us is that before we came to Christ, we were not just people who sinned once in a while. We were, in fact, slaves to sin. The idea of slavery is a very dark picture. We were in captive. We were in bondage. We were in chains to our sin. John chapter 8 verse 34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And Paul said in Titus chapter 3 verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various pleasures and passions. In Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We were formerly slaves of sin. We were in bondage under this cruel master. And the Bible says that not only were we slaves to sin, we were actually enslaved to the will of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And so slavery is a very dark concept. It is a very dark word. This is the word Paul Uses to describe our former lives as unbelievers who walked in this world. You know, back when I was only five years old, I think I was in kindergarten. The miniseries *Roots* was shown on television, and I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember that miniseries. It was actually a television phenomenon. It the finale of Roots still stands today as the third highest rated US television program ever in the history of television. And Roots was based on a book by Alex Haley in which Haley traces back his roots back to the his time of slavery. He walks seven generations back into his family tree and he traces back and finds that his great, 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 great grandfather was a man named Kunta Kinte. And Kunta was born in West Africa, the eldest of four sons. And one day, Kunta is chased by four men who take him captive. He wakes to find himself blindfolded and bound by these men, and he's put on a slave ship for a three-month trip to North America. And Haley writes of his book of Kunta's journey, he says, Kunta wondered if he had gone mad. He was chained, shackled. He awoke on his back between two other men in a pitch darkness full of steamy heat. Kunta knew that he would never see Africa again. As we think of slavery, it revulses our hearts. It is such a dark, dark picture to be chained and to be bound. And yet that is what Scripture says we were before we came to Christ. That is who we were before we became Christians. And even to the man who was moral and ethical, he was chained. He was chained to the sin of his own legalism. What the gospel message is, The good news of our salvation is that when Jesus saw us chained and bound to our sins and to the will of the devil, verse 4 says, he loved us. He loved us. And he loved us so much in his infinite mercy, he said, I will come and I will buy your freedom. I will pay the price so that you may go free. And as a result of the price that Jesus has paid, we have been redeemed. We are released from our slavery. You know, there's a story that's told of a young slave girl who was being sold in the marketplace. And it says that a refined older gentleman saw her in the marketplace, and he had pity on her. He felt compassion on her because he feared that she would be bought by a very cruel master. And so he paid the price for her freedom and said, you are released. And the slave girl, understanding her freedom, started to run after that older gentleman. And she started calling him, you are my redeemer, you are redeemer. And she said, please, please, let me serve you. And as I thought of that story, I thought, isn't that the heart of the Christian? Isn't that the heart of the one who has been redeemed? That when Jesus says to us, you are free, you are released, I have paid the price for your freedom. Our hearts cry out. No, we don't want to go and just walk on our own. We want to cry out, Jesus, Jesus, let me serve you we want jesus to be our master because he is our redeemer and he is the one who has set us free from our slavery so what is redemption it's the freeing of a slave it's the freeing of a slave through the payment of a price let's move to a second question that's answered in verse 7 and that is how is redemption accomplished how is redemption accomplished? In other words, what was the price that Jesus paid in order for us to be freed from our slavery? Well, verse 7, Paul tells us that we have redemption, and here's the key phrase, through his blood. Through his blood. That is the key phrase that describes the accomplishing of redemption. That's a key phrase that describes the price that Jesus paid in order for our freedom to take place. The greatness of redemption is seen in this that the payment price to set us free from our slavery was nothing else than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, when I've kind of walked through this world, and oftentimes when I've Seen how much things cost, I'll get sticker shock. You ever get sticker shock? You go to the car dealer, and you say, oh, that's a nice car, how much does it cost? And they tell you, well, it's $30,000. you say, oh, no way. How can something like that cost so much? Or maybe you've gone to shop for apartments, and they tell you the rent, and you get sticker shock. What, it's like a one-bedroom apartment it costs that much to rent this place? Or Maybe you've gone shopping for a condo or a home and you'll look at this tiny little place and the realtor will tell you this costs half a million dollars. And She'll tell you, well, it's because of a location because it has nice Berber carpet and you're, you have sticker shock. How can something cost that much? I believe that when we look at our salvation, there ought to be a sense of sticker shock. What was the price that needed to be paid in order to purchase our souls from slavery. And the Bible tells us it wasn't a hundred thousand dollars. The Bible tells us it wasn't a million dollars. The Bible says that the price to purchase our souls was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That was the price that needed to be paid, it was a price of infinite value. And the reason why that price was of infinite value was because our sin was of infinite offense. We were bought not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And I want you to notice that phrase carefully. Think carefully with me, please, because this doctrine demands precise thinking. Would you notice that Paul does not say here that we have been redeemed through the death of Jesus Christ? Now, that would have been true if he would have said that. If he would have said that Christ purchased us with his death, that would have been a true statement, but that's not the term that Paul uses. In verse 7, Paul says here, that we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that was the price to redeem us. Now, why does Paul specifically mention the blood of Jesus? I believe that it's because he wants to tie in the doctrine of redemption with all of the sacrifices that We're offered in the Old Testament system. I believe Paul's intention here in verse 7, when he says the blood of Jesus, is he wants to show us the context of the cross of Jesus Christ. He wants to connect the truth that Jesus died on the cross with all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, If you lived in the Old Testament, you lived under a bloody system. It was a bloody system. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Think about living under the system. And every time you sinned, Every time you became conscious of your sin, you would take an animal, an innocent animal, a goat or a lamb, and you would take that animal to the tabernacle. And you yourself would take a knife and you would plunge it into that animal's body. You would take the blood of that animal. And and Leviticus chapter 4 says that the priest would take the blood of the animal with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. And then catch this. It says, he would pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. So we're talking about cups of blood here from that animal. We're talking about bowls of blood that you collect from that goat or lamb. And every time you sin, you go to the tabernacle and you shed another innocent life. You kill another lamb or another goat. You know, I was teaching this to my children this week. And I was just saying to them, look, you know, um, any of you not sin today? And none of them were bold enough to raise their hand. They all said, yes, Daddy, we, we all sinned today. Well, you know, mommy and Daddy sin too. We all sinned here. I told them, you know, if we lived under the Old Testament system, each of us would have to take a, a lamb or a goat today. And we'd have to take that goat and we would have to kill it. And we'd have to take the blood of that goat and we'd have to pour it out. And it'd be a bloody mess. And I I said to them, you know, children, imagine doing this every time you sinned. Every time you sinned, you kill another goat. Every time you sin, you kill another lamb. And imagine in our backyard that we just had a whole bunch of goats and lambs. We just raised goats and lambs. And they're just all out there. And we're just killing them and killing them and killing them. And there's just blood and blood and, and more blood being poured out. And they said to me, Daddy, wouldn't we be killing a lot of animals? They understood because we sin every day. And I said, that's exactly the point. You would be killing a lot of animals. You would be shedding blood every single day. And there would be a sense of futility in your life because no matter how many goats and how many lambs you kill, you're going to sin again tomorrow. You're going to have to do it again. And you're only sacrificing for the sins that you're conscious of and you know about. What about the sins that you don't even know about? They're they're sins that you're not even aware of in your life. What about those sins? Maybe you would even go to the tabernacle and kill a goat, and on your way home, you get mad at another Israelite, and you say, oh, i got to go back. Sacrifice again, and there's just blood everywhere. Your whole life would be marked by blood. When we go to the New Testament, the New Testament tells us that those animal sacrifices could never take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never take away sins. They were never really effectual. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You say then, Dan, why did God prescribe it? Why did God prescribe this bloody System, if these sacrifices could never take away sins. Well, Hebrews 10 verse 3 tells us, but in these sacrifices, there is the reminder of sins every year. Those sacrifices were a reminder of sin. They were a teaching tool used by God to impress upon the Israelites' heart that you are a sinner, and the wages of your sin is death. And if you, as a sinner, are going to live before a holy God, an innocent life must take your place. There must be a life that is unblemished and spotless and innocent, and that life must pour out its blood for you to be saved. A child growing up in the Old Testament economy might ask his father, Daddy, why do we slaughter so many animals? And the father might say to that son, Son, these animals are meant to teach us of our sin. These animals are meant to teach us of our guilt. These animals are meant to teach us that the wages of our sin is death and that we need a substitute. We need one, the perfect sacrifice, that will once and for all take away our sins. And one day, son, God is going to provide that sacrifice. And so Jesus comes in the gospel records to fulfill the promise of hundreds of years of Old Testament history. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus in the gospel of John, the first thing that he says is, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the perfect sacrifice who will shed his blood, who will be our substitute and stand in our place. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When Paul says that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, he is Capturing all that Old Testament imagery, all that Old Testament sacrifice, and he is capturing it in this single phrase that it is the blood of Jesus that has purchased our soul. It is the blood of Jesus that has redeemed us from our sin. Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And brothers and sisters, can I say to you this, that you and I have a desperate need to come time and time again back to the blood of Jesus let us never move on from the blood of Jesus. Let us never move on from how we need the blood of Jesus. Let us never trust in anything else but the blood of Jesus. We are all afflicted with spiritual amnesia. We forget, and that is why Jesus said that you need to take communion on a regular basis because this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. And if you're burdened and if you're weary and if you're burdened by the guilt of your sin, may I say to you that today, not just the day of your conversion, but today, this day of your Christian life, you have a desperate need for the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1, verse 7 says, it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. And let us never move on from the blood of Jesus. I pray for Cornerstone Bible Church that this church would be a, a blood-preaching church. I pray that this, this church would, would be marked by blood-centered preaching, blood-centered teaching, blood-centered ministries. I pray that that there not be a single ministry here that is not centered on and drawing its power from the blood of Jesus Christ. That our prayers would not be bloodless prayers that our worship would not be bloodless worship, that our care groups and fellowship would not be bloodless fellowship. This is the truth that is the center of our Christian lives and we must never move on from the blood of Jesus Christ. The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon said this, unless the preacher is more preaching the blood and sprinkling it by the doctrine of faith, his teaching has no voice either to rouse the careless or to cheer the anxious? Would you have me silence the doctrine of the blood of Jesus? Would any of you attempt so horrible a deed? No, we will sooner have our tongue cut out than cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, may that be the foundational commitment of our church, is that we stand and we rest in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what is Redemption. It is the freeing of a slave. How is it accomplished? It is accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the third question that I want to ask for this text is, what is the result of redemption for your life and mine? What is the result of redemption in our lives? And Paul answers that question in verse 7. This is so beautiful. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And then here's the result. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. You know, redemption and forgiveness are placed side by side here in the text. And that's because Paul wants to connect our forgiveness with our redemption. Paul wants to show us how forgiveness is not just something that is based on God's warm feelings toward us, but that forgiveness is based upon the payment price that was purchased. I was paid at the cross when Jesus died for our sins. And he wants to show us that forgiveness is rooted in historical event, historical accomplishment. I think for much of my Christian life, I feel that, well, if God's in a good mood today, he'll forgive me. And if God feels warm fuzzies toward me today, then he'll forgive me. But I want you to see that as Paul connects forgiveness with redemption, what he is showing us is that forgiveness is not only the expression of God's compassion. He's showing us that forgiveness is actually the expression of God's justice. It is just and it is right for God to forgive us because the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for us. Our sins. You might think of going to the mall and buying a set of clothes and then going home to find that this store has charged you twice for that pair of clothes. And immediately on getting your credit card receipt, your immediate reaction would be to say, that's not right, it's not just, it's not fair to, pay, to charge someone twice for a single item. in a similar way, it would be unjust for God to punish our sins twice. It would be unjust for God to punish our sin once at the cross and then again in us. It would not be righteous, it would not be fair for God to accept a payment for our sin and then charge us again for that very same price. And so forgiveness is connected to our redemption. And forgiveness is an expression of not only the compassion of God, but also the justice of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, telelestai, meaning it is finished. And that Greek term, telelestai, was actually used of commercial transactions, when someone had a debt and it was paid in full, they would write "telelestai" on the receipt, saying that it's been paid in full. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid in full the price for every single one of our iniquities. Would you note here that Paul says that we have forgiveness of our trespasses, our trespasses, plural. He could have said that we've been forgiven of our sin and that would have been kind of a general idea. But he's more specific here. We've been forgiven of our trespasses. Our individual sins is the idea. Our anger, our coveting, our discontentment, our pride, our selfishness. Each of those sins have been nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. You know, I share this with you as one who's struggled with understanding God's forgiveness. And I still struggle today understanding God's forgiveness in my life, in the life of others. Oftentimes in my own Christian walk, I've asked the question, can God really forgive me again for this sin? Is God really going to forgive me again or Or is he just fed up with me? Is that it? Is is he just through with me? Because I've just pushed it one too many times. And I know that in those moments that it feels noble. It feels almost spiritually noble to question God's forgiveness. Because you're saying, oh, I'm so humble about my sin. My sin is so great. And maybe God won't forgive me. But I would say to you this morning that that's not humble. Humble. And it's not godly. When we question God's forgiveness, we're questioning the character of God. We're questioning the love of God, the compassion of God, the justice of God, and the faithfulness of God. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might be saying, well, Dan, sometimes I don't feel forgiven. You know, I I know the Bible teaches it, but I don't feel forgiven. I still feel guilty and oppressed and burdened by my sin. May I just give you a pastoral word of advice, and that is that your feelings are not an accurate measure of truth. Your feelings are a very unreliable measure of what is true. Learn to live your life not by your subjective feelings. Learn to live your life by the objective truth in God's word. And the objective truth that is in God's word is that we have forgiveness. Notice Paul says in verse 7, it's not we will be forgiven. Or that maybe on a good day we will gain forgiveness. It is we have forgiveness as a present abiding possession. And maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, you know, Dan, I know God forgives me. I know God forgives me, but I think he sort of holds his nose at me in heaven, and he sort of looks at me and kind of says a a sigh of disgust and says, well, yeah, okay, fine, I'll forgive you. Husbands, maybe you can relate to this where your children come to you and they apologize, or your wife comes to you and, and they apologize, and you kind of just say, I forgive you. There's really no emotion or no affection in that. It's just, yeah, I'll, I'll do the legal thing I'm supposed to do. And maybe you have an idea that God forgives you in that way. But look at what Paul says in verse 7 where he says, We have received the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then he adds, according to the riches of his grace. His forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace. It is not out of the riches of his grace. If a billionaire gives you one dollar out of his riches, he is giving you out of his riches. But if a billionaire gives you a million dollars, he is giving you according to his riches. The idea here is what Paul is saying is that God's forgiveness is a lavish forgiveness. It is a lavish forgiveness. Psalm 103 verse 12 as far as the east is from the west so far does he remove our transgressions from us what is redemption it's the freeing of a slave it's the freeing of a slave through the payment of a price how is it accomplished is accomplished through the precious blood of our savior Jesus Christ and what is this result what is this blessings It is the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of God's grace. And you say, Dan, why did God do this? Why did God do this? Why did God choose me for for the foundation of the world? Why did God adopt me to be his son in Jesus Christ? Why did God redeem me from my slavery to sin and forgive me all of my trespasses? I believe verse four would answer that question, that one little phrase in love, in love, in love He chose us, in love He adopted us, in love He redeemed us, and in love He forgave us. One of the great moments of our nation's history was the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. And when Abraham Lincoln signed this executive order, approximately four million slaves were proclaimed to be free. And two years later, the U.S. Constitution ratified these convictions. And the word was spread to every state in the Union that slavery is abolished. Millions of slaves were declared to be free. And this was a glorious moment in American history. And yet we learn from American history that Possessing freedom and actually living in the good of that freedom are actually two very different things. It is possible to possess positionally freedom and yet practically still live life every day as a slave. And this is exactly what happened during the American period known as the Reconstruction Era. One historian writes that in this era the slaves were locked into a caste system of race etiquette as rigid as any they had known in formal bondage and that their experience could be summed up in the words of one slave who said, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln except they say he got us free and I don't know nothing about that either. There are Christians who positionally have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. Yet on a day-to-day basis, they still live as slaves. And where I would just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, is we are not just only called to understand this doctrine. We are not only called to be able to rehearse this truth. We are called to live in the light of the good of what Christ has accomplished. To day by day, Living in the light of our redemption. Today, by day, living in the light of the blood of Christ. Today, by day, living in the light of our forgiveness and the grace of God which He has lavished upon us. I'm, I'm burdened that many of us still live as slaves of sin. We still believe that sin has dominion over us, that we are enslaved to our iniquity. And Jesus is saying to us through this text, No, I bought you from that sin. I paid the price so that you would no longer be a slave and I purchased your soul for myself so that you would live in the freedom that I provide. Are you walking in the good of your salvation? Are you walking in the light of the redemption that Christ has given to you? Can you say this morning that Dan, I don't, I'm not just positionally free but practically I'm living my life as a f- freed son of God. My heart is filled with joy and my heart is filled with praise because Jesus has redeemed me through his blood. Would you bow with me in prayer and let's ask the Lord to impress these truths on our hearts and our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for the joy of Diving into the riches of our salvation. And Lord, as we come before this great truth of redemption, we do stand before Jesus at the cross. And we just stare, Lord, in wide eyed wonder at this glorious truth that Christ loved us when we were slaves that he shed his precious blood, that he redeemed us, that we may be yours forever. Father, I pray that we would not only know these truths, but that we would live day by day in the light of them, that constantly in our everyday lives we'd be rehearsing the great truths, redemption, forgiveness, the blood of Christ, the grace that has been given to us in our salvation. Let us live as free men and no longer as slaves. We give to you all the praise. We pray all this in Christ's precious name.